I'm so thankful uh, for this conference. I'm thankful for the invitation. How many of you are thankful for the speakers? Amen. Amen. How many of you are thankful uh, for the staff that put this together? Amen. Yes. How many of you are thankful for um, the people that made sure there, were, there was food in the cafeteria every meal? Yes. How many of you are thankful for the person who pounded the steaks for the tent out there? Amen. You know, really, the pounding of the steaks had just as much to do with this, uh, these meetings as the speakers. Because all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose and love God. So I'm going to share a few experiences today that will help us um, go forward from here. Because this is our last day. Go forward from here and not just have a nice, good feeling and this swelling within us of, of um, a sense of God's goodness. But actually to have a plan or at least to have a sense of of what we can do now to make sure that we continue walking to the kingdom. And so I'm going to share this with you in a series of stories. The last one is actually just a parable type story that I had in a dream uh, one time. And uh, it wasn't like, a, you know, it's a normal, normal dream, but it had just a deep meaning and I could, un I could remember every, everything about the dream. Um, so I will share that with you. How many of you were here the first time I gave devotion and I shared my testimony about how my daughter and I ate poison hemlock, one of the most poisonous, yes, okay, most of you, that's good. So you'll remember in that story, there came a time when I had to ask a very important question, and that was, am I ready to see God face to face? And I had to answer no. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, when I had a second chance to live, my purposes, my aims, and even my efforts changed. Okay, my, my purposes, my aims, and my efforts changed. They changed, which was evidence. I was a, an elder in the church. I had a good family. I was following country living. I had left paradise. We lived in Hawaii to follow country living. Um, but all those things did not actually answer that question. Am I preparing to see my Savior face to face? Those things help, no doubt. Those things help. Um, you know, building a fence is good, but we still need fruit, right? We still need fruit. So through that experience, um, it was actually just the next spring my wife came to me, and she, it was just a normal day like any other day, and she says to me, um, I just passed a home pregnancy test. Ah, it was like great news. We hadn't had a baby for uh, five years. And so... Uh, my, my two daughters were very, very excited. They wanted a little brother or a little sister. They disagreed which one. But they just wanted something. So they started making plans. They went to a thrift store. They bought little clothes. They didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, so they bought green and yellow. And, and they just, you know, they were so excited. They were making plans. They were getting little blankets together. And uh, it was about a month later that my wife came to me, and she said, you know, there's a problem. There is a problem I'm bleeding. 
And so I do what I normally do, I do a little research. And I found that it's normal in the first trimester for women to, to have extra bleeding. So we said, okay, let's not overreact. This is kind of normal. It didn't happen in the first two pregnancies, but uh, maybe, maybe this is just different. So we waited, and my wife is very tough. She's from Japan. She's educated to be tough, you know, to just endure no matter what. So she was tough. She came to me a few weeks later, and she said, I'm still bleeding. So we began to pray. About a week later, she says, I'm still bleeding, but I'm getting weak. And so I said, oh, this is not good. Let's go get an ultrasound and find out what's going on. So we went to the ultrasound. They're doing the ultrasound. My babies are there, my young, my young daughters. And we're just anticipating what's going on. And so as the, the person's there, she breaks the news to our family. She says, you have what's called a molar pregnancy. That's when there's a problem, uh, and instead of a baby growing in your uterus, there's just tissue that's never going to become a baby. Do you remember my youngest daughter who ate that poison? She was climbing out of that high chair saying, Dad, I don't want to die. She cried ten times harder when she, when she found out that she lost her brother or sister. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to have a heart for our brothers and sisters. Amen. You know, in that day when we meet our Savior face to face, we are going to cry if we lost our brother and sister. There is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you read the Old Testament, it's actually referring to God himself weeping and gnashing his teeth over the children he's losing. We said, what, what do we do? The person says, it's very similar to an abortion procedure. You go in, we need to clear out that tissue, making sure the uterus doesn't recognize it anymore. You'll stop bleeding. Your body will recover. So my wife, being from Japan, both of her parents were in the healthcare field. They're both retired. Her mother was a nurse, and she was devastated emotionally. And she, She's also tough, and she loves her duties. So we made a quick plan, and we said, the, maybe the best thing would be that you go to Japan, uh, get the procedure done there. Her mother could care for her recovery, and she wouldn't be tempted to overwork in our home. So we basically re relieve her of her duties for a little while. So she did. We, we got it the next morning, out of the blue, you know, we get a plane ticket, and she's off to Japan. She has an appointment for a week later to get that procedure done, but before she could get to that um, appointment, she fainted under the loss of blood. And so her parents had to pick her up off the floor, rush her to the hospital, and they performed this procedure um, as an emergency procedure. We were communicating, and she was doing fine from the surgery, and she said, you know, this is a pretty rare 
occurrence already, this kind of pregnancy. But she says there's like a one in a million uh, chance that this tissue that's being produced in the uterus is actually cancerous tissue. So they're going to send it off to the lab, and we're going to get the results in a couple weeks. So then, sure enough, <laughs> she had that one in a million. And what happens is your uterus starts producing cancer cells in that form of the tissue. And it's, you know, in the uterus, you have that, that umbilical cord that's connected right to the bloodstream. And so those cells go right into the bloodstream and get redeposited throughout the body. First in the lungs, then into the brain, and then the liver and kidneys. And it's in that progression. And so they say, at the lung stage, they have about a 95% chance of survival. When it gets to the liver and kidneys, they have a 0% success rate. And it's so rare, actually, that most of the doctors have never treated a case. And so the doctors are a little frantic. They know that this is something extremely unusual, so they, they want to do something. You know, we're praying do we, do we let the doctors do what they want to do, or do we take some natural routes? And so we prayed about that, and my, my wife made the decision. And I honestly would have made a different decision. But in retrospect, I'm glad she made the decision she did. And um, during that time, I was not going to argue with my wife. I did not need to add any additional stress to her. The decision she made was, I'm going to go through whatever procedure they want me to because my parents are not Adventist, they're not Christian. They're both in the healthcare field, and this is what they have confidence in. If I leave their care and go to something else, they're going to feel like I'm committing suicide, and they're going to think I'm crazy. And the stress of me dishonoring my parents in that way I would not be able to rest easy. I would rather honor their wishes and die than to not. She says, even if the procedures kill me, I want to be in harmony and peace as far as I can with my parents. I said, wow. Okay. I said, but maybe you don't have to just do that. We can do everything else we know in addition. And so she did. And she engaged her parents on those things. And so now they're serving up all the things that we know to her. So she's not eating hospital food. Her parents are cooking all this other good food on the side or giving her fresh food and fresh juices just constantly and doing all these things that we know. And so her parents engaged in those things, but she went inpatient in the, in the hospital. So my daughters and I, we're thinking, okay, we need to get to mama. But, you know, we dig out their, their passports and their passports had just expired. So I go to get passports, and they say, you know, you have to have both parents here. You have to have both parents here to get passports. And so I explain the situation. She's in Japan. She's in the hospital. Can't you get her here? No. So to make a long story short, because this is not the whole, the whole testimony, I was working from home at that time in the country, had the two daughters. They're homeschooled. My wife was away from us for six months in the hospital for four and a half. In the hospital for four and a half. We didn't know if she's going to live or die. Her numbers did not always look good. And my daughters picked up the slack. 
you know, I was on the computer a lot. I had this meeting one day. So I had a headset. You know, I'd be on a meeting. I'd be running my team. And so my daughter said to be quiet because this was my office. My home was my office. But I had, like, this five-year-old daughter. And so I still needed to have her within sight. So my girls got really good at being quiet. I didn't like that, but that's uh, the way it was. So I was just starting a meeting one day, and my little five-year-old comes over, and she taps me on the shoulder. I lift off the headset. She says, Dada, I'm going to make bagels. And I'm thinking, we've never made bagels before. But I'm like, even if it's a disaster, at least it'll keep her busy for an hour or two, and that's great. You know, those bagels were awesome. My brother was there, and my brother was like, these are great. Who made these? I'm saying my five-year-old. And so now to this day, she loves baking. Every preparation day going into Sabbath, they would have the house spick and span by the time I was done with work. They cooked every meal. We were still gardening. They were doing the gardening. They were bringing things in. (laughs) We canned 125 quarts of applesauce. They, I should say. While I'm on the computer on the table, they're on the other side, like peeling, coring apples, you know, boiling. My, my seven and five-year-old, I couldn't believe it. They just like rose to the occasion. They were so faithful in little daily duties. Now my 12-year-old is not like most 12-year-olds. She's not like most 12 I wish I could have brought her. She's not like most 12-year-olds. She's more like a 20-year-old. You know, she just has that kind of sense of her duty. She's going to perform it. She's not asking for help unless she needs it. She's just going to do what she needs to do. So powerful. So powerful. God, during that, brought my wife and I closer together. We said, we made an oath in the middle. We said, no matter what happens, no matter how bad this gets, she basically couldn't walk. It destroyed her. She had less hair than I did when it was, you know, during the middle of that procedure. We made a covenant that no matter what happens, we would not curse the name of the Lord. And it was precious. It was a precious walk, and we had a great reunion at the end. And I learned a lot from my daughters during that time. I have pictures, screenshots, because we would Skype. I have screenshots. I took a few screenshots of my wife during the talks, and I have her laying in hospital bed, Bald, shiny, with the biggest smile you can imagine. Oh, she taught me something about cheerful endurance. Oh, she taught me some beautiful things. I saw it. So I asked you how grateful, how thankful you are. I have a verse in Psalm 107. Psalm 107. In verse 8, it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High, Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. This is actually describing the children of Israel during their times of being in bondage. But I believe that describes an experience that almost every one of us can relate to. How many of you came to this conference feeling a sense of being in a little bit in bondage? 
And through this conference, you feel like those bands have been broken. Yes, I know it. I've seen it. I have seen it. So now there's a step. Okay, it says, then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Okay, when you leave here, if you want this experience to last Praise the Lord for his wonderful works toward you. Praise him and make it daily. Make it daily. I want to teach you through another example, observing another brother. There was a man, his name I'm going to just call Brother H. He's still alive, um, although he's very old. He's about 90 years old. And this story I'm talking about was in his late 80s, okay? Brother H is what I'm going to call him. Now, when I met death, everything had to change, right? When, when I was given a second chance, everything had to change. Brother H called me one morning very early. He never called me early in the morning. And he said, Anthony, I need you to come over to my house. And he made an excuse for why I needed to be there which didn't make sense. And he said, and I need you to be here in five minutes. Now, Brother H was a very timely man. So when he said, I need you to be here in five minutes, he always taught that if you're not there, five minutes before you're supposed to be there, you're late. (laughs) He's really saying, you need to be here now. So... I could discern that on the phone. I hung up. I said, I'll be there. And I got there. I get to his house. I knock on the door. He comes to the door. I walk in. And he complains that I didn't go through the other door, which was unlocked. Just just lightly. And so then we walk into the kitchen. He, He starts to tell me the reason that he has me there, which, again, did not make sense. And then he reaches out his arms. And he says, catch me. And he begins to faint. And I put my hands out under his arms. And he's a tall man, a little heavier than me. And I catch him and I pull him close to me. And I can just feel him kind of dropping and dropping. And then his legs give out completely. And his body goes completely limp. And then I can feel his body just heat up. And he's completely unconscious. And I gently lay him to the floor. And I dial 911. And I have my hand on him, and I'm praying as the 911 people give me breaks. I'm trying to give them the address. Just as I'm hanging up with 911, he regains partial consciousness. And so I said, Brother H., Can you hear me? And he didn't respond for a little while. Can you hear me? He says, yes. I said, do you want me to move you to the couch? No, just leave me right here. He was complaining of 
knee pain, leg pain, upper leg pain. I said, can I put a pillow under your knees? No. Can I? He's like, just, just, just leave me. So I'm there. I'm just by his side. I have my hand on him, and I'm just praying silently. A couple minutes go by of just silence. He's just laying there. He looks like death. His skin looked like there was no color in it. He was dying. And he tells me, there is something you can do for me. He was a farmer and he was working with other people. And so I didn't know what he was going to ask, but I was just relieved that there's something I could do. He said, there's something you can do for me. I said, anything. He said, Tell Sister D, harvest the radishes. Make sure they're washed. Plastic bags in the refrigerator, just, just like we like them. He wasn't like, changing his path at all. It was mission as usual. And how small of a duty was on his mind as he was facing death. You know, I'm thinking, Lord, I'm not ready. I, I can see all these things I should have been doing. And he's there facing death saying, harvest the radishes. Make sure they're washed in a plastic bag in the refrigerator. I could not believe it. That man did not have to. He was ready to see his Savior face to face. He had no fear, no changing of purpose. His purposes were pure. It was powerful. It wasn't like, Oh, go tell my family, go, go, you know, tell this person, I'm sorry for what I've done. You know, can you pray for me because I've got these sins? I, nothing. Just harvest the radishes. You know, continue marching forward. Let's be faithful in those daily duties. Let's just be faithful in those daily duties. I could not believe it. Through the grace of God, Brother H actually recovered from all that. When they got there, his blood pressure was something like, I don't remember exactly, but 30 over something. I mean, it was just, he was, he was almost dead. He was dead. Oh, that taught me a great, great lesson. We need to purify our purposes, brothers and sisters. We need to account at the beginning of our plans and the beginning of our aims if we're ready to see our Savior, and if those plans are going to lead there. Success in any line demands a definite aim. And so if you want to be redeemed, that means you're going to get back what you lost, right? That's what redemption means. You had something, you lost it, and you're going to get it back. System of redemption, you had land, you sold it away for some purpose, you're going to get it back. You're going to redeem that back to yourself, right? 
So if you want that redemption, you've got to start looking to your Redeemer and start going in the path of redemption. Okay? And then wherever God allows you to stop on that path, you are on the right path. You don't need to change at that point. There's a beautiful quote that encourages a lot of us who do these studies, who come to these conferences, and we see such a high calling for us. We see that God wants to give us victory over everything. And sometimes that becomes overwhelming. Overwhelming. There's an amazing quote um, in Faith and Works, and I'm just going to paraphrase. But it says, when the person has a heart to obey God and puts forth effort to that end, God accounts this disposition as man's best service. Okay? We need God to give us a heart that wants to obey. That's something we can't do for ourselves. But he has entrusted to us the effort. The effort. That's our choice. He's protected that choice. That right to put our effort where we want to put it. So when we get that new heart, we cannot leave off that effort part. You know, later in that quote, it actually says, we speak a lot on faith, but we need to speak more on works. And that's a scary thing because, you know, if you do works in the wrong way, when you face death, you're going to be sorry. But if you get effort uh, and putting special effort in the right path, you know, special effort, making sure the little things are done, making sure the radishes are washed, then God will account that as your best service. You know, just the radishes are washed. Okay, so now I'm going to share with you uh, a parable. It was a little bit of a dream of mine. I call it the man with the bag. The man with the bag. Um, The setting is a very, very poor country. Although there are some very rich people in that country, the majority of the people live in poverty. In fact, there are villages of people living in houses that are made of branches and just pieces of metal kind of lean together to make shelters. Have you ever seen villages like that? When I was uh, 16, I went to Santo Domingo, and I worked in a village like that to build a church. And I, in my, my dream, it looked very much similar to that, a whole village of these things. And so people lived there. There was a young, young boy living there, and he was different, different than most Even though he was in poverty, he had a smile on his face. Okay? His name is David. I'm going to tell you about a real boy named David that I met. Every day I'd be working in the church, and this little boy would follow me around. We could barely communicate. I I, I knew how to ask to go to the bathroom in Spanish or a few things like that, but, but that's all. He would follow me around, this little boy. He was about eight or nine years old. I don't know exactly. And I was laying block in this church. And this little boy would pick up cinder blocks 
and bring them to me. Not because I asked him, but he just saw this guy needs cinder blocks. And he would put it there and he would smile. He has the most beautiful smile. I would piggyback him around. You know, he barely had any good clothes. I would give him my everyone that went on the mission trip back then in the early 90s, you know, like neon colors were in, were really in. So we had these neon yellow hats. I gave him the hat, gave him the T-shirts, gave him whatever I could. Every day, the one thing they told us when we first got there, we were staying about an hour away. They would take a school bus there. And they told us before we got off the school bus, we're going to have lunch back here on the school bus. Whatever you do, do not take food out there the people will actually mob you to get the food, and it's dangerous for you and dangerous for them. So do not take food off of this bus, okay? So the first day we get there, it's lunchtime. They call us all out of the work. We go back into the school bus. We're sitting there in the seats. They start passing out the brown bags, and the children, in the children 40, 50, 60 children, all ages start climbing on the bus. You know, they're on the roof. They're on the hood. They're hanging off the side. They said, whatever you do, do not open the windows. They're pounding on the windows. We're sitting there. There's children pounding on the windows, some hanging from the top, some hanging from the side, yelling in Spanish, like, give us your food. How much of an appetite do you think I had? Just roll up the bag. Wait for lunch to be over. Took me a day, but day two, I knew what to expect. Roll up the bag, hide it away. I go to the back of the church. You know, the village was this way. There was just kind of like a barrier of woods and weeds and things. Took little David back there. Made sure no one was around. Gave him food. Gave him food. And every day this happened. And so David had a peace. He was not pounding on the windows. He was not climbing on the bus. He knew I was going to take care of him. Oh, it's beautiful. But it was almost the last day I was there. Same thing. Routine. Sitting on the bus. Rolling up the bag. I look over at these children, my heart is breaking, and it's David. David is on the window, knocking on my window. Knocking on my window, and so I'm trying to tell him, just wait. Like, you know, just wait. But he doesn't have a desperation look on his face. You know, he has like this, like, 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 you know, you know me. Like, I'm asking you something. Just trust me. This little nine-year-old, that's what I got from him. Just trust me. And so I was just going to crack the window enough to tell him later. So as I cracked the window, he had a bag. He reaches into the bag. You know, he's hanging. And this, this little boy's athletic. I, I, like, crack the window. And as soon as I do, he reaches his hand in through the window. And in his hand are two shrivelly little oranges. And he's giving me food, brothers and sisters. If he had two oranges, 
couldn't he have kept one? He gave me both oranges. That was the greatest gift I've received, you know, tangible form, two shrivelly oranges that they warned not, us not to eat the fresh fruit there because of sanitary purposes and these enzymes that were going to give us problems. But wow, I treasured those little oranges. Greatest sacrifice I have seen. Little David. So this is the kind of setting, this is the kind of setting that this story, this parable is going to be in. There's a young boy like that that lived in a village. He would always look outside of his village and there was a street, there were like um, mopeds going by with people on them. There were cars and buses. And, you know, his little village was so poor, no one had cars, no one had anything. They were just these metal, you know, huts. And he would always look out there thinking about one day when I get big enough, I'm going to go out there and see if I can do something better. And so as this boy grows to about 16, he starts looking out. And every day, he would see a man walk by with a bag. You know, mopeds, buses, schools, people walking. But this one man had a bag, and he would walk by. So he builds up courage, and he decides to go out there too one day. And he stands on the edge of his village at that street, and he's watching. And he's thinking, do I go left? Do I go right? I just want something better for for my life. And so he decides to go left and he walks and he doesn't know what he's looking for and as he walks he gets further and further from his village. He gets out of the city. Traffic starts to calm down. He gets more into the country and as he lifts his head he looks and he sees off to the, in the distance there's a field and it's colorful. And he goes over there closer and it's full of flowers. And he had never seen flowers like that. He just saw the, you know, the trampled dirt in his village, you know, trash on the side of houses. He had seen you know, tropical trees and things, but never just a field of flowers. So he picks one of the flowers. It's almost the end of the day. He thinks, well, I better get back home. He's going home. He hasn't really found what he was looking for. He was looking for something better, you know, maybe a way to make a living, a way to make some money. Just as he gets back to the entrance of his village, he hears a voice behind him. Young man, he turns around. It's the man with the bag. The man with the bag says, I see you have a flower there. Would you sell that to me? The boy was going to show it to his mom and his grandmother, but he was thinking, well, maybe I'll go out tomorrow and get another one. So, yeah, I'll sell it to you. So the man takes the flower and gives him a pretty good sum for the flower and walks away. And he's looking at this money, and he's amazed. And so it starts to calculate in his mind, maybe I can go pick flowers and I'll sell those flowers. So he puts the money in his pocket. He goes home. He rests quietly. doesn't want to let anyone know that he has money. He'll be mobbed for it. Next morning, he wakes up. He goes to the edge of the village, turns left. This time, he's walking with earnestness, get through the city, out. He sees the field of flowers. He goes, and he picks a whole handful. He comes back to the village. Just as he's getting to the entrance of his village, he hears a voice behind him, young man. He turns around. It's the same man. 
I see you have more of those flowers. Would it be okay if you sell those to me? I'll buy all of them. The boy smiles. Yes. So he gives them to him. He gets the money, puts the money in his pocket. That night, he stays up. He's taking like, leaves off of trees, and he's weaving a basket so he can carry more flowers. Next day, out to the field, basket of flowers coming back. Right at the entrance of the village, voice, young man, see you have those flowers. Would you sell those flowers to me? All of them? Yeah, all of them. Gives them the basket, gets the flowers. That goes on for about a week with the basket. Then the man with the bag says, young man, I see you have those flowers. Would you sell them to me? Yes. He says, have you thought about getting a cart? Young boy's thinking, a cart? The man says, I know where you can get one for a good price. Just go down a couple blocks. There's one for sale there. I think you might have enough money for it. The boy goes over. Sure enough, he has plenty of money. He gets the cart. He goes out the next day, loads it with flowers. Coming back, the man, young, young man, would you sell those flowers to me? He says, the problem is, young man, you're selling me so many flowers I can't carry them. Maybe you could get a really nice ribbon and start binding them together. It would be easier for me to carry. Other people that you might sell them to might attract more business for you. So he goes and he buys some ribbon. He goes out the next day with his cart. He, he gets these bouquets. He starts tying ribbons around them, bringing them back. Young man, you sell me your flowers. And this just goes on. One day, the man with the bag says, young man, have you thought about getting a shop? where you can sell your flowers? The boy says, can I afford that? He says, I know where there's a shop for rent for almost nothing. It's just down there to the right. There's a storefront. It's for rent. He goes, sure enough, it's way under market value. He rents it, and he starts taking his flowers there, tying them with ribbons, the man with the bag starts coming to a shop, buying flowers. Then this young man starts to get smart. And he says, you know what? This is going so well. I'm getting so rich. I'm going to go online. So he gets an online website, and he starts putting his flowers out there. And when that happens, he starts selling as many as he possibly can. He hires a delivery boy in these Flowers are just going out, going out. Every day he goes to the field, he gets more flowers, he brings them to a shop, he sends them out. His mom and his grandma are at the shop, they're helping in the shop, they're looking to him as their ticket. You're going to make us rich. He starts to think, yeah, I'm going to make us rich. Man with the bag comes to the shop one morning, says, young man, would you like to walk with me today? The young man says, mm, you know, I've got some business to take care of. Things are going pretty well. And 
the mother overhears the invitation. And she's like, son, you can't go. You know, we need to keep this thing going. So the man with the bag says, uh, I'll see you this evening. Goes out just like he did every morning. Comes back in the evening, buys whatever he hasn't sold online or in the store. Cleans them out every day. Whatever he has left, buys the rest of them. Comes back a month later. Young man, how about today? You want to you walk with me today? Young man says, mm, you know, we're just going to upgrade our website. We're going to get we're going to go global. We're maybe going to franchise. You know, we're right in the middle of these plans. I don't think I can. This time the man with the bag looks more sad. He leaves. This invitation happens one more time. Same excuses. The man with the bag says, son, are you sure? And he says, yeah. With a tear in the eye, he says, okay. And the man with the bag goes on his normal daily walk. That evening, he had not sold any of his flowers. And so he was anticipating the return of the man with the bag because he just knew that man was going to buy the rest. And in this case, it was going to be all of the flowers for that day. But the man with the bag did not show up. The man with the bag did not show up. A few days went by. Not a single online sale. Man with the bag didn't come by in the morning. Man with the bag did not come in the evening. A week goes by. Not a single online sale. And then as he's there in the shop and the flat screen TV is up in the corner and it's tuned to the news, there's a breaking news report of a missing man in the town. A son of one of the most well-known and wealthy people in the town has a son. And he was just known as a guy who would go and leave the city every morning and come back and no one really knew what he did, but they just knew that he was regular. And so no one worried about him. But he's missing. And so the news report was, we have this missing man. So if anybody's seen him, his father really wants to know where he is. Please report, if you've seen him, to the authorities. And he says, that's the man with the bag. The next morning, he goes out to the field, and he notices, notices something different as he's gathering flowers. He's noticing that the flowers that are there are kind of wilted. And there's almost no new, fresh flowers in bloom. The news report gets more intense and desperate to find this man. So the news now has his father right there pleading with people to tell him where his son is. And he's so desperate that he brings the news crews to his son's apartment. And he says, I'm going to bring the news crews in here and let them just scan the cameras around. See if there's any clue that any of the watchers out there might be able to tell what happened to my son. And as they open the door, they go in, 
The apartment is empty except for a mountain of ribbons. And as the young man in his shop was watching that news, he was doing math in his mind, and he's like, that mountain of ribbons must account for every online sale I've ever made. There was one other thing there. There was a bag laying on the floor just in the corner. The news reports go over to it, the reporters. They open it up. They look inside, and it's full of seeds, flower seeds. That man with the bag was going out to the field every day, sowing the field with flowers and then coming back and buying him from that young man, and then telling him how to be successful. And as the man was on the journey, he, the young man was on the journey, he was too busy to take a walk with him. This young man grabs the closest solid thing next to him. He's realizing his situation. He falls to his knees. And he says, no! And he gets up and he runs out of his store. And he begins to run and run and run to find the man with the bag. I don't know if he ever found him. If you find the man with the bag, will you let me know? Will you let me know? There's a, there's a quote that I want to share with you. And then I think we're done. I think we're going to be done after that. It says here in uh, Selected Testimonies, December 9, 1908, paragraph 10. Let a living faith run like threads of gold through the performance of even the smallest duties. Then all the daily work will promote Christian growth. There will be continual looking unto Jesus. Love for him will give vital force to everything that is undertaken. Thus, through the right use of our talents, we may link ourselves by a golden chain to the higher world. This is true sanctification. Okay, we've talked about conversion. We now know that we're justified. We're talking now about moving on to sanctification. This is true sanctification, for sanctification consists of the cheerful performance of daily duties in perfect obedience to the will of God. No matter how small, no matter how small, whoever arranged the chairs today, plugged in the microphones, Vacuum the floor a week ago, those people are just as much doing the will of God as the speakers are here. True sanctification is the cheerful performance of daily duties, no matter how small. So you don't need to leave here in excitement thinking, I need to build an online store ministry. 
or whatever it is, because I see maybe other people doing that. What you need to do is take a daily walk with the man with the bag. You know that man with the bag, I'm sure the reason he invited him out there was because he wanted his joy to be full. He wanted to show that young man everything he had been doing for him, and then he wanted to probably give him his own bag so that he could go out and plant a new field and start buying flowers from another young man. So whether it's washing dishes or sweeping the floor or wiping the drool off of an old person's face, cheerfully performing that daily duty is sanctification. And that's a work that cannot end until we see Jesus face to face. So I invite you to go look for the man with the bag yourself. Will you? I hope you find him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious gift. I think of little David who gave me those two oranges. Everything he had. You've given us everything heaven had to offer in your son Jesus. We thank you that he's sown seeds of of truth and righteousness and hope and new life in us. I pray the field of our hearts would be like that field of flowers that would, that would transform us. I pray that our joy would be full, but that we would heed the daily invitation to walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.